You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Habemus Papan. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Well, hey there, everybody. Nice to see you. My name is Steve, and I'll be doing this little broadcast today on a thing we call the One Peter Five podcast, which shows up periodically throughout time at random intervals. I think it's been, I don't know, maybe six months since we did a podcast. And I feel like I have a little bit of explaining to do because why? Why was it gone? Well, because my family and I are insane. Um, in the last 12 months, I think we've moved three times. And there are reasons for this. Um, I would bore you to tears with the story, but suffice to say, these have been big moves. Two of them involved moving across country, one of them moving back um, across country after we made a failed attempt to return to the East Coast and then discovered that um, sometimes you just can't go home anymore. So now we are settling down in the desert of the American Southwest for the foreseeable future. Um, we exhausted the possibilities recommended to us by homesickness and a desire for seasons and more civilized things and have settled for cactus and sand and amazing sunsets. But we also have a good parish, good friends, good schools, a sense of community, um, and some familial obligations that have sort of been present and interwoven throughout all of this. It could be, you know, some big things at stake here. Possibly some souls uh, being saved through baptism. You never know. So, without getting too deeply into the personal things, suffice to say that we are happily in a, in a house, again, finally, that has a home office space for myself and my lovely wife, I am currently occupying said office, and um, it is delightful to have an office with a closed door, although my children are home from school because Christmas break is is upon us, and um, you will probably hear noise in the background, yelling, wailing, gnashing of teeth, the beeping of alarms as doors open and close, that kind of thing. Um, So I apologize, but hey, I got a bunch of kids, and this is a Catholic broadcast, so... I figured you guys could handle it. So that's that part. Um, I do ask, uh, if you're listening to this, please say a prayer that we can finalize the purchase of this home um, that we are in right now. We are currently leasing the home that we intend to buy. And uh, we have some things that need to happen, including the sale of our old house, um, so that we can finance this whole transaction. And I just don't ever want to move again. (laughs) If I can avoid it, I just would really like to just stay right here. And you can carry me out in a box, and that would be fine. Um, So your prayers to that effect would be great, because the disruptions that happen in our personal lives, of course, all spill over into our work. And the work of 1 Peter 5 is uh, its intense stuff, and it requires a lot of concentration. Um, And I would like to get off the roller coaster and, you know, back to it. So that's that part, the housekeeping part. Let me pause to take a sip of my beverage. So today, as we ease our way back into the podcast, we're going to just do um, a bit of a monologue because there's some things that I think are important to talk about. Um, and they, you know, they need to be addressed. I think everybody who is on Team Jesus, as I like to say, when it comes to opposing the infiltration of the church, is kind of, um, everybody's had enough. I don't want to speak for anybody, you know, too strongly, but I think people are fed up. I think they're tired. I think that um, they don't want to hear any more bad news. Um, And that's all normal. 
Um, but I think that it is having an impact on morale. And I think that the enemy, and by the enemy, I of course mean Satan and all of his pomps and works and minions, um, are sowing division in the ranks of those who are trying to do the right thing. There has been so much combativeness in Catholic discourse lately. And it always happens. You always hear people talk about the circular firing squad. But I just, I don't know. I see people attacking, personally attacking others over things um, that revolve around theological disagreements. And these theological disagreements are serious. I mean, we uh, posted an article last Friday about the rise of the Benevigantists. And I think, first of all, I think people take things too seriously. We live in an age of everyone being offended by everything. Guys, stop. You know, Benevigantism is not intended to be uh, a pejorative, um, you know, that somehow, you know, is really unduly snarky or that, you know, paints people as being stupid. Look, I call myself stupid all the time. I do dumb things, but I also make jokes. You have to have a sense of humor about what's going on. And Benevicantism is literally not even intended to be uh, a word that means anything because it doesn't. It doesn't convey the correct meaning. And I know that. I didn't coin the term, but I do find it funny. It sounds funny. And that's why I use it. That's all. And it's shorter than saying those in the camp who believe Benedict is still Pope. You know, there are, you could come up with a different word, but benevicantism sounds like sedevicantism. And there is a correlation between those two things. And I'll talk about those in a little bit. But please, if you think Benedict is still the Pope, I think you're wrong. But I'm not your enemy. In fact, I understand very much why that position appeals to you. And that is because we have the worst Pope in history right now. I get it. Francis stinks on ice. But I happen to believe that it is extremely important that we do not allow circumstances that have gotten out of control to cause us to lose our faith in the institutions of the church, in the authority of the church as God provided it. You know, if you read the writings of the saints, God is so big on obedience. He always has been. You know, look at the story of Abraham and Isaac. Who wants to go sacrifice their own son? But but God rewarded his obedience and, you know, he stopped him. Look at the story of Job and everything that he lost, but he remained faithful and he got everything back. Look at the story of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, you know, who gave us the devotion to the sacred heart, when she told Jesus that something that he wanted her to do uh, was not getting approval from her superiors, he told her, I desire obedience. Go do what your superiors say, and I'll find a way around it. This is the story of salvation history. God is in charge, and he expects us to obey, and he puts people in charge. Like any good ruler, he delegates authority because he can't Well, he could, but he doesn't do it all himself. He delegates authority, right? He gives it to the apostles. He gives it to to Peter and to his successors. He, He delegates authority, and then he imbues in them the ability to make these decisions and declarations and things, and we're supposed to follow them. That's our job. We're supposed to be good little soldiers and do what they say. And that doesn't mean we can't think, and it doesn't mean we can't question. But it does mean we have to be very careful about making determinations for ourselves. And I think what's happening is people are just so done with everything that's going on with the papacy and in the church and the bishops and and the, the rekindling of the sex abuse crisis and everything. They're so done. And they can't wait for God to sort it out because they don't know when that's ever coming. And so they get impatient and they're like, we need to do something ourselves. We just have to do something ourselves because, hey, we live in the age of, if you don't like something, change it. If you don't like the guy who's president, vote him out. If you don't like this thing, start a grassroots campaign to get it, you know, fixed. If you want a law, then you can go start a petition drive and make a law. 
We are agitators. And we routinely confuse activity with achievement. We think that if we're busy and we're you know, moving pieces across the board, that we've accomplished something. But in the church, that's not how things work. We are not dealing with pure naturalisms or political systems here. Yes, there are human beings running the church. Yes, there is politics, tons of politics in the church. There's red tape and bureaucracy and backstabbing and gossip and all kinds of very human things. But the church doesn't belong to those men. It belongs to God. And even a bad ruler has authority given to him by God. When Christ stood before Pontius Pilate, who was about to unjustly condemn him, and Pilate said, do you not know I have the power to release you or to sentence you to death? And Christ said, you wouldn't have that power if it were not given to you by my Father in heaven. He didn't say, yo, you don't have the power because I'm God and you're not. He didn't say, you're ruling unjustly, so you're no ruler at all. He said, you have authority because God gave it to you, man who is about to condemn me unjustly to death. This is our faith, and it is a mystery, and it is difficult to grapple with, and boy, does it rub us the wrong way, especially Americans, because we are just rooted in revolution. That is who we are. We love David and Goliath stories. We But we see any authority that we don't like as Goliath, and that wasn't the case in the Bible. We're always rebelling. And I get it, because things are bad. Just this week, Francis has doubled down again on, on the death penalty stuff, basically saying that all of his predecessors were wrong about the death penalty and that he's right. And I see people out there saying, oh, clearly he's a formal heretic. That's not how this works. Formal heretic, for someone to be a formal heretic, there's a juridical component. There's there's a process that has to happen. Someone can be involved in the promulgation of formal heresy because formal heresy would be a, a denial of something that is directly revealed, divine revelation. Uh, and somebody who denies that, you know, rather than just saying this off the top of my head, let me give you the definition. Back when the death penalty thing really started to get traction under Francis earlier this year, and it's not the first time he's mentioned it, he brought it up in the past, he's got it in Amoris Laetitia. It's a real problem, and it's, you know, something that the church does not teach that the death penalty is morally inadmissible. It just doesn't. It is divinely revealed, it is affirmed by popes by the magisterium. It is affirmed by doctors of the church. It is affirmed in uh, the encyclical Exerge Domine. It's affirmed by Pope Innocent uh, III. I don't remember which one. St. Thomas talks about it. St. Augustine talks about it. Trent talks about it. It's it's not reformable. Um, It's actually dogmatic. The death penalty is a morally permissible recourse in principle. In application, yes, we can have a discussion about when it should be used. But you can't say that it's inadmissible. You can't say it's contrary to the gospel. And Francis has said both. But I reached out to a theologian I'm friendly with who is an expert on magisterial teaching. Uh, And he had told me, I'll just quote him, the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church on the intrinsic morality of the death penalty is irreformable dogma. To deny this or assert the contrary is formally heretical. So pay attention. Catholics remain obliged to believe and accept this doctrine regardless of any changes to the catechism. But what does it mean to say that this is formally heretical? He then makes a distinction between formal versus material heresy. This is a distinction, he says, pertaining to the objective status of doctrinal propositions. A heresy is any proposition opposed to any dogma. Two things are required for a doctrine to be a dogma. One, it must be contained in divine revelation. And two, it must be proposed as such by the church, either by solemn judgment or by the ordinary and universal magisterium. If both of these requirements are met, then the doctrine is a formal dogma, and the denial of such 
is consequently a formal heresy. If a doctrine is contained in divine revelation, but has not yet been proposed as such by the church, then it can be called a material dogma. Such was the case with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary in the patristic and medieval periods. Material heresy is the denial of a material dogma. So he continues, there is a difference between promoting a formal heresy and being a formal heretic. Okay. So the distinction there pertains to the subjective culpability of the person involved. A heretic is a person who believes or teaches heresy. A material heretic is a person who believes or teaches something which is objectively a heresy. They may not be subjectively culpable, however. A formal heretic is one who continues to do so obstinately after having been duly corrected. So, this theologian argues, in the case of the dogma of the intrinsic morality of the death penalty, the denial of this dogma is formally heretical. Since it contradicts a doctrine which is contained in divine revelation and which has been proposed as such by the ordinary and universal magisterium of the church. The person who denies this dogma is a material heretic simply in virtue of his denial. But he is not formally a heretic unless he persists in his denial after having been duly corrected. So we break down this language of several paragraphs of theological jargon to basically say, you can be guilty of promoting formal heresy without being a formal heretic. And material heresy is easy for people to fall into. I was a material heretic when I was a teenager. I thought Jesus had only a divine soul and not a human soul. Totally missed out on the whole hypostatic union thing until I was taking theology classes. And then I was like, whoa, how did I miss that? I don't know how I didn't pick up on that. And if anybody had asked me, I would have explained it the wrong way. Not because I intended to oppose what the church was saying, but because I just failed to properly understand what the church believed. And that's possible for someone to do, even with something that is formally heretical, because it, it concerns a formal dogma of the church that has been defined. But what we don't know and we don't have is proof that Francis has been duly corrected. And we cannot assume, it seems obvious that we should be able to, but we cannot assume that simply because he is the Pope, that he has the, the proper theological formation to make these distinctions. Lots of malformation, particularly among the Jesuits. This is a, a known problem that we have in the world. So we can say it's probable that he should know this, but we don't no, and what cardinal are you aware of? What bishop are you aware of who has formally corrected this pope on any of this? We had the dubia cardinals. We had the promise from Cardinal Burke that a formal correction would come if the dubia weren't answered, but it never did. It never came. We have not had a Galatians 2.11 moment ever since this papacy started, and it absolutely demands one in several respects. St. Paul in Galatians 2.11 says, when, uh, when Cephas came to Antioch, I rebuked him to the face because he was to be blamed. That was a bishop rebuking a pope. That, that was what that was about. And he set the stage. St. Thomas has a, a gloss on Galatians 2.11. Um. And he teaches us that we don't have any choice. We have to rebuke his superior when he de deviates from the faith. He said that St. Paul, quote, opposed Peter in the exercise of authority, not in the authority of ruling. Therefore, so what that means is he opposed the way Peter exercised the authority of his office. Not, he did not oppose that Peter had the authority to act, to rule. Okay? So he wasn't questioning the papal primacy, he was saying, Peter, you have this power and you're using it wrong. You're using it the wrong way. So, St. Thomas continues, therefore, from the foregoing, we have an example. Prelates, indeed, an example of humility, that they not disdain correction from those who are lower and subject to them. Subjects have an example of zeal and freedom, that they fear not to correct their prelates, particularly if their crime is public and verges upon danger to the multitude, end quote. That's not schism. 
That, correcting a wayward pope, is a Christian duty. But now we have this thing called benevacantism. Benevacantism is a word that seems to be offending a lot of people, and I think we all need to stop with the snowflake stuff. Stop being offended. This is silly. Benevacantism is a a word that someone came up with because it sounds funny. It sounds like sedevacantism. Great. It sounds like sedevacantism, and it's humorous, and it means nothing. The word actually fails to indicate anything. It makes it sound like Benedict's not in the seat, which he isn't, but that's the literal meaning of benevacantism. But there is a connection between Benevicantism and Sedevicantism. And that connection is taking things a step further than simply correcting a prelate because he poses a danger by teaching the wrong thing, and you want to bring him back toward orthodoxy and toward authentic teaching, and saying, you know what, I have moral certainty that the man that the church says is the Pope is not the Pope. Just think about it. What does state of a contest do? Is it, are, are they wrong? Are they schismatic because they say that the papal seat can, can be vacant or is vacant? Because at any given time when a pope is dead and there's an interregnum, the seat is vacant. It's possible for it to be vacant. There's nothing schismatic in itself about acknowledging that there isn't always a pope on the throne. What there is a problem with is saying there's no Pope on the throne when the church says, yes, there is. Because what you're saying is I arrogate to myself the authority to say, no, I'm right. The church is wrong. They say Francis is the Pope and I say he isn't. Or they say Francis is the Pope and I say Benedict is. I know better than the church. Francis is an anti-Pope. I'm going to call him that, anti-Pope Bergoglio. I'm going to call him that all the time. Anti-Pope Bergoglio, right? That's where you get into trouble. And that is where people cross the line into schism. Because schism is a refusal to submit to the Roman pontiff or to those of the faithful who are in communion with him to, like, to share communion with them, right? So you're breaking communion with Rome, with the Pope. How does it not compute for people that if the church says Francis is Pope and all the sitting bishops of the world say, yeah, he's the Pope, and all the cardinals say, yeah, we elected him, you don't have an out. This is not the situation with St. Catherine of Siena and St. Vincent of Laren, you know, are having this debate over which of the claimants, the rival claimants to the, to the throne, are legitimate. We don't have rivalry here. Benedict says, I resigned. I abdicated in such a way that the seat would be vacant and a conclave would have to be held to elect a new pope. He said that in his abdication statement. He has affirmed that Francis is the pope. I have reached out to sources close to Benedict and I have been told there's no question that he believes that he is no longer the pope. We've got some stupid statements that have been made, unfortunately, some very confusing statements that have been made by people close to Pope Benedict that make it sound like he thought that there was some expansion of the Petrine ministry and blah, blah, blah. I don't don't care. We're we're desperate for answers, and I get it, because I don't have them. If somebody comes up to me today and they say, Steve, uh, I hear what you're saying about Benedictism and this and that, but... How do you explain... That Francis is, is denying divine revelation on a couple of points, but particularly the death penalty. And that he's saying that his predecessors, you know, ignored mercy in using the death penalty, which is inhuman and, you know, is, is contrary to the gospel, contrary to human dignity. How, how do you explain? How can a man who says something like that be the Pope? I don't know. I don't know. And if that's not good enough for you, I'm sorry. And if you're not content to sit with that, I'm sorry. But I don't know and I can't know because I'm not a pope and I'm not a council of bishops. 
I, I don't have the authority to, to figure this out and make this determination. And the best I can do is speculate. And if I speculate wrongly, I could lead you to a place you don't want to go. And then I'm responsible and I got to answer for that when I stand before God, because I have this platform and millions of people read what we put out there. And I say the wrong thing. I say, yeah, don't trust the church. Hmm, don't trust them. Trust me. I know. This guy's not the Pope. This guy is. And you just have to believe me. And if you're not, you know, you, you're in schism. If, you're, if, if you think, you know, that, um, that it's, a, it's a pretty impoverished protection of the indefectibility of the church to have a Pope who, who resigns, not really resign because of some defect that nobody even knows about, including him, and it's super secret, and nobody acknowledges it, but secretly, he's still the Pope, even though he doesn't think so. And that's how the church is saved. And I'm sorry. I think that that is a very poor guarantee. It is not visible. It does not save people from scandal. It does not help them to understand what's going on. We can't have certitude about it because the church isn't ruling about it. There's nothing about this that is a consolation to Catholics who are struggling with that man in Rome. And if you think, like Anne Barnhart has accused me of, that that means I deny the divinity of Christ, you're wrong. And if you say it, you're, you're calumniating. Anybody who you say it about. You're wrong. You have no right to say it. Don't say it. But you know, until people start becoming dogmatic about their opinions on this stuff, we don't have to be enemies. You know, we agree on most of the stuff. There's no reason we should be all fighting with each other. It's ridiculous. It is absurd, and it is counterproductive. But I'll tell you what, I have a right to my good name. And I don't have to lay down and just let people attack me. None of you do. You know, people love talking about the circular firing squad of Catholics online, particularly traditionalists. But I don't think it's a circular firing squad if there's a group of people standing in a circle and like, a handful of them just keep shooting at everyone. How long are you going to dodge those bullets? When do you have a right to defend yourself, to fire back? But I don't even want to have to. What is the point? Why are we doing this? And this stuff where one publication attacks another, one Catholic writer attacks another, why? I'm not the subject of the news, I'm not the Pope. I'm not putting weird stuff in the catechism. I'm not you know, trying to change the doctrine on marriage and, and do end runs around moral teaching and, and saying the death penalty you know, is whatever. I'm not doing that. The remnant's not doing that. Ann Barnhart isn't doing that. National Catholic Register's not doing that. Rorate Chaley isn't doing it. J.D. Flynn at Catholic News Agency isn't doing it. None of us are the subject of the news. We are commenters on the news. We are reporters of the news. We are not the story, so stop making us the story. We need to stop. We're all organizations that talk about the people who have real power, making real changes that affect the church and the faithful, and any time we're spending taking swipes at each other, it's just a waste of time. I just keep thinking of that adage that says great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. We try here at 1 Peter 5 not to discuss people. Sometimes you have no choice because you're dealing with a situation where an idea is so intrinsically wrapped up in a person or so associated with them that they become identified with it. And it's hard to extricate those two things, but you need to try to focus on saying, okay, these are the problems I have with the idea. We wrote this article about Benedict Hauntism, and I didn't write it. Um, actually, I didn't even solicit it. It just came to me from Ryan Grant, who is the founder and owner of Mediatrix Press. I mean, this is a guy who is translating Robert Bellarmine, St. Robert Bellarmine, who's the guy who is most people look to for the theology about whether or not a pope can be a heretic in the first place, and he's translating his works from Latin into English. He's qualified as a Latinist. And he looked, among other things, at the Latin grammar 
because that's one of the big arguments that the Latin grammar of Benedict's abdication, and he says, it's not a problem. Guys, there's no argument there. And he dismissed several other uh, points of argumentation. 916 comments on that post last time I checked, and it was published on Friday. 916. I've, I've been doing this now for almost five years. And I've had posts get shared 30, 40, 50,000 times, and we've never had 900 comments on a post. And for the most part, people favor the Benevicontist theory, the Barnhart thesis, whatever you want to call it. They favor it. Our own readers. And I know that they favor it, and I've known this for a while, and it's one of the reasons why when the article was offered to me, I took it. Because I'm concerned. I feel a responsibility. This is my publication. I started it. I run it. I have editorial oversight over what goes on the site. And if I'm leading people through my work to the conclusion that they get to decide who is and isn't the Pope, that's a bad thing in my mind. So I'll say it again. If you think that, and I disagree strongly with you, and I think that it's technically schism, whether you're subjectively culpable or not, and that it's dangerous, and please don't do it because I care about your soul and I don't want you to separate yourself from communion with the church. No, I'm not issuing a formal anathema. No, I'm not excommunicating you because I can't, but I'm saying I'm worried that that's what it is and that you'll be culpable for it to some degree, and I would hate to see that happen to you. But we're not enemies, I don't want to hurt you. I'm not trying to drive you out into the wilderness. But I have to keep control of the conversation here in this forum that we host. I'm also not an Arian heretic. I don't deny the divinity of Christ. I profess the creed publicly at every Mass I attend. Jesus is the Son of God. Just said it. Say it again. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. I'm a Catholic not an Aryan. And his divinity is not a matter for dispute. We've got to get this thing under control. And I don't know how we can. And then one of my big lamentations as somebody running a publication is I don't know how to give people the answers they're looking for anymore. People email me all the time. What do you think about this? What am I supposed to make of that? I don't know how to deal with this, that, and the other thing that's going on. I don't know. I send these questions to bishops. And then I don't get responses from them half the time. I try behind the scenes to get answers. I have tried to get Archbishop Gonswein or Pope Benedict to come forward with a statement clarifying their minds on this. But even if I do... Think about it. If you're listening to this, you're probably in one of the two camps. You either think that Benedict is certainly not the Pope, or you think he probably is. Maybe you fall in the extremes somewhere. You think he's absolutely the Pope. There's no question. I don't know. But if he came out tomorrow and said, no, I am not still the Pope. I totally resigned. I don't think the papacy can be bifurcated. I don't think that there's such a thing as an active and contemplative ministry within the papacy, blah, 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 right? Whatever, whatever it is that he said. Is there anything he could say that would convince you otherwise? I think it's actually more likely that people who think he's not the Pope would say, oh, if he says, no, I actually thought that I could split the papacy, and papacy into two roles, they'd be like, oh, well, maybe there was a substantive, you know, substantial error in his resignation even though the Pope's not subject to canon law, but that's a separate question. But maybe there was a substantial error, and maybe he really did fail to resign. I think it's very likely that people who think he's not the Pope would question it. I would. I would say, okay, if he really thinks that, then we've got a problem. But I don't think anybody who thinks he is the Pope would hear him say, nope, I'm not, and say, oh, yeah, he's totally right. I get it. He said it. I got to go with what he said. No, they'd say, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, or, oh, he's under duress, or, oh, somebody's got a gun to his head, or, 
And the problem is, is, is we're working in the realm of imagination. We can come up with any number of scenarios of why we think, you know, he didn't really resign, even though he's saying the contrary. And we can just keep coming up with more and more and more ideas because it's all in our heads. We don't know the facts, so it's all in our heads. And so we just go around and around and around in circles. And what good does it do? What problem is it solving? This is what I don't understand about this. What if he technically is still the Pope? What if he is and he doesn't know? What changes? Is Francis going to do something about it? Nope. Is the council going to be called to do something about it? Nope. Do you think there are any cardinals out there who, even if they believe this is a thing, and I've heard a rumor that there's at least one who's like, yeah, maybe there's something to this. But he also said, you know what? I don't think there's anything anybody can do about it. Nothing is going to change for us. Ontologically, this matters. Absolutely. Practically, it doesn't. Because it doesn't change anything. Except our attitude towards the authority of the church, because we say, you say X and I say Y, and I don't care that you're the church, and I don't care that God gave you the authority. I'm right, you're wrong. And it's rebellion. It is rebellion, and that's why I think it's schism. And I get it, because I don't want to take it either. And I don't know, maybe there's some line that I can't cross, and I'm going to be like, no, church is wrong, I'm right. But I hope not, because what's left after that? How are we not Protestants at that point? And I find it so unbelievably ironic that I toiled so hard and was slammed by everyone trying to point out to people that Francis was not okay and that he had an evil agenda and this wasn't just a mistake and it work, work, work to try to get people to see it. And now they see it and they're starting to scoff at me because I'm saying just because he's a bad Pope doesn't mean he's not the Pope and we have to be very careful. And it's like they just sped past me. It took a while for momentum to build, but now they're gone. But I think we have to, if we are faithful Catholics, we have to retain our integrity in terms of our loyalty and and obedience to Holy Mother Church. I've always said that one of the features, one of the hallmarks of this papacy is that it's a kamikaze papacy. He has gathered all the power that is available to him. And he is using it to destroy as much as he can, including the institution itself, so that when he's gone, whoever takes over, I don't care if he's another St. Athanasius, he is going to have an enormous uphill climb. People aren't going to trust the papacy. They're not going to know where the lines around papal infallibility really are. They're not going to know what to believe. We're going to have not only St. David contests, but these, you know, basically, again, to use the term Benedict contest, you know, crypto state of a contest who basically are like, Hey, we know who's really the Pope and who isn't because he's faithful. Well, I mean, are they going to go along with it? Are they going to say this new guy's the real Pope? How do they decide? That's the thing I've never understood about state of a contest. How do you get out of that dead end road? When do you decide, Oh, this guy's Catholic enough. I believe that he's really the Pope. Cause then you're saying, well, I don't trust any of the Cardinals because they weren't put in place by a valid pope, and so there's no way they can have a conclave. That you know, It's endless. The number of rabbit holes you can go down when you begin to doubt this stuff, the entire church falls apart. And I understand that that's what every one of us is trying to avoid, is looking at the church and saying, I don't believe in any of this anymore. The promises are false. The church isn't indefectible. The gates of hell have prevailed. We are all trying to find intellectual mechanisms, spiritual mechanisms to cope with that temptation, to ward it off. Retrovade Satanis, you know, like it says on the St. Benedict middle, you, you just want to get that temptation out of your head because you believe this, you've given your life to it. But I think this is where childlike faith comes in. My children are small, most of them. I don't have to explain to my three-year-old or my five-year-old 
my rationale for doing something that may be complicated and difficult for them to understand. They have to just trust me. I'm their father. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to take care of them. We're going to get through it. Let me do my thing. Be kids. Don't worry about it. God is putting us in that position, no matter what you think about what's true here. He's putting us in that position, and he's asking us to trust him. Do you? Do I? I struggle with it. Not going to lie. I struggle with it. I want to know what's going on. I don't like not being in control. I don't like being on the back of a motorcycle going 160 miles an hour with a blindfold on. I want to know where we're going and what's going to happen and are we going to be safe. But it doesn't matter what I want. I'm not in charge. And I think having the humility to recognize I'm not in charge, this is not my problem to solve, goes a long way toward helping us not to make stupid mistakes. Because it's easy to step up into a landmine when things are this crazy. I don't want to do it, and I don't think you do either. I see, you know, that I I understand that some of these things that I'm saying now are very unpopular. And that some of our audience has felt alienated by these things. And I'm sorry. But this brand, my personal approach to all of this, which is what drives this enterprise, is and has always been about telling the truth to the extent that I'm able to perceive it and express it. I add those qualifiers about perceiving and expressing because I know how fallible I am. I'm not above making mistakes, even big, stupid mistakes. But my track record so far is demonstrative of the fact that I'm not prone to making them. We have misfires, but we don't have a lot of them. Not on things like this. And I've wanted to address it here for a while. I've wanted to address this growing theory for a while, but I didn't want to kick the hornet's nest because I didn't feel qualified to handle all the arguments. I saw somebody leaving a comment somewhere today saying, oh, Steve thinks that his bachelor's degree in theology makes him so smart. No, actually, I don't. What I say over and over and over again is that a four-year theology degree is an entry-level pass to concepts and understandings of this giant, unfathomable world that is Catholic theology. The depths cannot be sounded. We have 2,000 years of scholastic tradition, of theological thought and development. Nobody gets to the bottom of that lake. It's an ocean, not a lake. And I consult with people routinely who have given decades of their lives to this study, who teach it, who study it, who publish books and papers on it, because I don't want to mess things up, because I know I'm not smart enough. I'm not knowledgeable enough. I'm not well-read enough. I don't have what it takes to pick out all the nuance and make sure that I'm 100% clear and correct. I can't handle the question of defects in Latin grammar. And I gain nothing as a publication. We gain nothing as a publication by tackling this. There's no good that comes from this. To use the parlance of our social media kids, social media friendly kids, we've been ratioed to death on this because so many people think Benedict is still the Pope, are becoming convinced of it. Controversy is not good for us when everybody's on the other side. And we've received nothing but headaches for our efforts here. We choose to address this purely out of concern for souls. And if you've listened this long, I hope that you will tell people this. 
I would not be trying to combat these ideas if I did not believe they were dangerous to people's salvation. At the end of the day, I may be proven wrong. At the end of the day, it's possible that I missed something and and that I got this wrong. And if I do, and if I did, I'll own it. Saying it here now, hold me to it. I'll own it. But I'm telling you, I don't believe I am. I have a very strong conviction that I have to err on the side of the church, and the church tells us Francis is our Pope. And I don't have room to start playing with certitude that I am not entitled to and offering it to you as a way out. Another thing I want to address is that I'm not, and I really want to be clear on this, I am not making the argument that people need to shut down their critical faculties. It's not my position that there's no room to ask questions about things that are manifestly bizarre. If you've got problems with the fact that there's a Pope Emeritus, that he wears white, and said that the only reason is because there were no clothes you know, that fit him, that in any other color, and that he lives in the Vatican, that he's called by the papal honorifics, that his personal secretary has said things about a bifurcated papacy. Guess what? Me too. I have problems with all of that. And I have, although I can't say too much about it, sought remedy for some of those things, as I believe I mentioned earlier, by trying to push my own sense of urgency back through the channels I usually receive information from at the Vatican. Because I want to see these things addressed. I want... Pope Benedict and Gonswein and all of them to recognize just what a colossal mess of things they've made by doing this. How confusing it's all become. How they have a moral duty to get rid of this confusion by addressing it. I'm an American Catholic blogger and news commentator. I will never get in the room with Benedict or Gonswein. It's very unlikely. But I have the ability to talk to people who can. And for now, that's all I can offer you is that I'm trying to see if someone can get this message to them. My commentary on this issue is not going to change anything. Maybe theirs will. And I'm agitating for them to do something, to clear up the mess, because we all have questions, and we just need to know that we have to draw the line at questions and not jump ahead to conclusions. And something that Ryan Grant said in his article that people bristled at is that many of us are just not ready to suffer what we have to suffer under Pope Francis. That's a hard thing to hear, but you know what? He's right. I'm not. Are you? I have had my faith tested so many times and in so many ways since this pontificate began. He has pushed me to the brink. And people want to give me a hard time because I talk about being exhausted. You know, I mentioned the moving three times in a year. And that's just three times this year. There have been other moves in the last two years. But that's not all. You know, I talk about having nothing to say that's constructive to you. And they conflate this with me just giving up. When I started fighting this battle against Francis, I was pretty much alone. There were a few people out there that were doing it. But there weren't a lot. Nobody had heard of 1 Peter 5, and I built it by doing what most others, not all, but most, were unwilling to do. And that was talking about the problems before they were politically correct. I hammered, and I hammered, and I hammered. And all the while, I trying to retain our organizational respect for the office of the papacy, not crossing those lines, holding back on personal attacks, all of it. And people accused us still of, of being schismatic pushing out fake news, all of it. And we've been attacked and maligned, and I personally have had more attacks on my person and my character and my good name than I can count as I've tried to do this work. And at the same time, I've watched my family come under massive spiritual attack. My children come under spiritual attack with very long-lasting consequences. My marriage come under attack. My health suffer. But I just kept going because I didn't know what else to do. 
I don't know how to walk away from a war that isn't won. And now there's all these people who are on board with us. Some of them have apologized about how they treated us in the beginning. And, and they're all zealous for the fight, and I appreciate it. But wow, sometimes I can barely lift the sword. But I care about souls. And I care about whether my audience is led astray. I care about whether anger that is righteous passes that barrier into sinful. And I'm somebody who knows what it's like to pass from righteous to sinful anger because, wow, do I have a hot temper. I care about browbeating you all with negativity, of not just hitting you over and over and over with bad stories that just make you question why you're even a Catholic. I know what staring into the abyss all the time does to me. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not better for it. And if at any point it becomes clear to me that this isn't what God wants for me and this isn't a calling that I just have to suffer through that he's going to give me the grace, I don't want it anymore. We need to be aware of the evil, but how do you not be consumed by it? And then I go into our comment boxes and what do I see? It's just mayhem. Folks, most of them hiding behind pseudonyms, taking pot shots at each other or me or our writers. Emails from people saying, hey, I donated, and I don't like what you have to say, and you need to do what I say. No, I am not some sort of bought and paid for puppet. It's funny, because people support me because I fight. They love to see me fight the enemy. But the minute they get into an argument with me, their feelings get hurt, and they don't know how to manage it. This is a war, people. You asked for warriors. We're not going to always say things that you like. We're not going to always fight your pet battles. And if that's the case and you really can't stomach it, go. Nobody's keeping you here. If you donated money and you think we're not representing you anymore, take it somewhere else. Support somebody who does. I have always said that this is God's project and if he wants it to succeed, it will. And if he wants it to fail, bye. I'm not anyone's puppet. I'm in this because I believe in certain things and I'm willing to fight for them, even now, as tired as I am, because what we do matters. But I have to stand before God. I have to answer for how well I formed and honored my conscience, how obsequient I was to pressures and human respect. I can't capitulate on my understanding of the truth because of outside pressures. And if I'm not mistaken, that's why you've all supported us so far, because you know that I'm not going to just bend and break. And that's what you want. And I also feel an obligation to those who are waking up to this crisis now, to tradition, to all of it. They need help understanding this firestorm they've suddenly found themselves in. And I want them to have a home here at 1P5. I don't want to soft pedal our arguments to the point of making them ineffectual, but there are a lot of people here taking baby steps right now. You can't force feed them. And I want them to know that we're with them, that we're patient, that we're going to be here because this is a hard road and they're going to have a hard time and they need support. So don't expect me to be a wilting flower. I'm going to put things out there that I believe matter most. And I'm inclined to more aggressively curtail people who, you know, toxify our community with their comments. I want discussion from sincere people who really want to figure things out, not people who just want to take pot shots. I get anger and I get hurt and I get confusion. And if people are expressing that in the comments, fine. But I'm done with all the snark and the sarcasm and the condescension and the derision and the, and the finger wagging and lecturing of everybody and the judgmentalism. Stop it. Stop giving the people who say trads are these ugly caricatures. Stop giving them ammunition because they're not wrong. If they come into our com boxes, they're going to have their confirmation bias confirmed. And if you're going to make plain your hostility towards our staff and our writers, don't be surprised when you find yourself banned. In fact, I'm very seriously considering implementing a real name policy. I don't like it when people hide 
behind pseudonyms. If you know you're someone who could lose your job, or if you're a priest and you can get in trouble with your bishop for commenting here, fine. Pseudonyms in that case, okay. But make it look like a real name. And if you don't have a reason and you're just not willing to put your reputation where your mouth is, you're going to end up having to lie if I implement this policy. And I'm really thinking about it. Because I'm going to say in the policy that you need to use your real name unless you face a risk to your profession. That's what I'm thinking about doing. And if people are willing to lie and use a pseudonym anyway, well, you have to take that one up in the confessional because I think you need accountability. My name's out there. My name's on everything. I have to think about everything I say because someone can Google me and find it out. And they can bring it back up and throw it in my face. And boy, do they. Having that kind of accountability helps us to remember how to treat people. Because the internet's ruining our ability to socialize. It takes good people, as my friend Hillary White has been saying, and makes them less good. It takes marginal people and drives them into being unhinged. I don't want to run a place anymore where I'm embarrassed by our combox when new people show up. And if we can't get this cleaned up, we're going to close the comments down. We have got to figure out how to work together. Despite the confusion, we have got to figure out how to remember what's good about being Catholic. We need to remember what virtue looks like. Embrace humility, no matter how hard it is. We have to recognize that we've got a way for God through his church to reconcile what we cannot. We need to care about souls, about each other. We need to offer the benefit of the doubt rather than looking for opportunities to score cheap points and tear each other down. I am not just saying this to you. I need to remember this. I like to fight. I need to know when to swing my sword and when to put it away. And if we can't figure out how to do this and how to set a Christ-like example, how in the world are we going to evangelize anyone? You know, it's one of the things I like about the secular American classical experience of Christmas is that it was the time when people set their differences aside they were just happy. They were joyful. They sang songs, they decorated, and they bought gifts. And many of them, if not all, remembered that the season was about the coming of the Christ child. We need some of that back. I know it's Advent, but maybe you need to throw on some Christmas music. Maybe you need to have a party and invite people over and just have real human interaction. Because I tell you what, I've had this thought a lot lately. If any of you who have a problem with me and the way I do things actually sat down at my dinner table, I would feed you well, I would give you good drink, and I would treat you with respect. And I think that you would reciprocate. I would welcome you into my home and my family. And I would treat you with Christian love. And the fact that we don't see each other face to face and the fact that we're not in the same room, that is not an excuse. It's not an excuse for us to treat people like garbage. It's not an excuse for us to be nasty and, and, and make personal attacks and damage other people's reputation and character because we disagree with them on, on things that are not even matters of settled doctrine or truth. We are not going to get through this on our own. Or as Benjamin Franklin said, gentlemen, we can stand together or we most certainly will all hang separately. I don't know how to get us there from here we're all punch drunk and and just 
taking swings at anybody who gets in our personal space and it's got to stop. And I say all. No, I'm sure that there are some in the sound of my voice who are actually not doing that. And I hope you will continue to set the example for the rest of us, including me. But I think that we can all do better. I'm going to try to throw in, throw together one more podcast before Christmas. But things have been chaotic and unpredictable and I can't make a guarantee. So if not, if I don't talk to you before then, may God bless you and may you have a merry and blessed Christmas. And thank you for listening. Till next time. I'm Steve Skojic. You've been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. If you have downloaded this podcast through iTunes, we encourage you to go there and leave us a review to help others find and enjoy our show. If you would like to support our work, go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate to make a tax deductible contribution. This not only helps to pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojek. Thanks for listening.